I want you to look at James chapter 5. We're going to finish our study in the book of James this morning. James chapter 5. I'm going to read for us verses 13 through 20. <clears throat> James asks, is any one of you in trouble? You should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith, or literally the prayer of faith, will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should turn him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I remind you the key verse in James is found in chapter 1, verse 4. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be finished and whole, not lacking anything. The things that happen to us and in us serve as the material that we, in cooperation with God, use to become finished and whole. When relationships are broken and our hearts are breaking, when we're happy and buoyant and our spirits are soaring, when we're sick and tired and uncertain about everything, these are the things, good and bad, sweet and bitter, easy and hard, these are the things we need to become finished and whole. Which is to say, these are the things we use to become our true selves. To become our true selves, to become finished and whole, God must become increasingly central to our lives. Let me repeat that. So that's the, if, if I was a college professor teaching writing, that would be the thesis statement. Okay? That's important. To become our true selves, to become finished and whole, God must become increasingly central to our lives. If you're going to become the person you long to be, God must become the person he longs to be to you. People who don't understand this will think that you've gone overboard with this God thing. You've gotten too religious. They'll say things like, don't misunderstand me. I think it's great that you believe in God and all, and I do too. But don't you think you've gone a little overboard? You know, all things in moderation. So that advice might make you a suitable candidate for political office. It will not make you a useful citizen in the kingdom of God. A half-Christian life might help you fit in. It won't help you fill out in the James chapter 1, verse 4 sense to become a person who's finished and whole, not lacking anything. A half-Christian life may make you representative of our culture, but it won't make you transformative of our culture. Some people, maybe you're one, assume that if God becomes more important to them, everything and everyone else must become less important, and they're afraid of that. 
For example, if I love God more, must I love my wife less? If I enjoy God more, must I enjoy my friends less? But that's not the way it works. The more I become myself, the closer I get to being finished and whole, the more of me there is to love others and to enjoy God's gifts. C.S. Lewis said it best, I think. He said one in a letter to a, a, a correspondent. He said, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. And so far as I learned to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. That's true. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. God must become more and more important to us, to me. But what can I do to give him a bigger place in my life? I can learn to bring everything that happens, both what I do and what's done to me, to God. I tie the periphery of my life where the storms are, to the center of my life where God's peace is. And I do it largely by prayer and by praise. I pray about everything, just as the apostle taught us to do. I rejoice in the Lord always, just as the apostle taught us to do. These are immensely practical things. Prayer and praise tie the things happening at the outer circle of my life, the part that you see, the surface, to the center and source of my life, to God. So let me just ask you, what are you going through right now? Are you going through trouble? The NIV's in trouble in verse 13 is really a verb, and it refers to suffering some ongoing pain. Does that describe you? Are you reeling from the blow of some unexpected hit, carrying a burden that's so heavy you can feel your knees beginning to buckle? Perhaps your reputation has been damaged by rumors and false statements. There's nothing you can do about it. You're suffering. You're in trouble. Those kinds of things happen. I, I learned a long time ago. It struck me as a revelation at the time. When I preach, I'm always talking to people in pain. Their pain's like a toothache. They can forget about it or at least ignore it if they're sufficiently distracted by work or by play but it will return to their conscious mind sooner rather than later. When we're going through these unpleasant things, James says we should pray. We use the things that are going on around us and in us, good and bad, to prompt us to connect with God. See, just trying harder will never make us finished and whole. We need input from outside ourselves to be finished and whole, from God. The suffering we endure can become valuable building material, but only if we connect with God. We should pray and connect with God when we're in trouble. But it's just as important to connect with God when everything's going great. The Greek word translated as happy in verse 13 means something like cheerful or encouraged. It's a verb, too. Actually, it, 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 so the, the first one, when you're suffering trouble, 
This one's like when you're cheering, when you're in good spirits, things are finally coming together. There's a buoyancy and an uplift in your spirits. You feel like you could take on the world. That too is the right time to go to God. Or it might be better to say the right time to invite God to come to you since he's at the door knocking. Will you let him in? In these good times, some people are ready to let him in when they're in trouble, but they ignore his knock when everything's going well. Why would I need God now? Everything's fine. Being cheerful is good, but it'll never make you finished and whole. Even if you could somehow maintain a buoyant spirit for the rest of your time on earth, you could be happy every day for the rest of your life, that's not enough. God has so much more and better planned for you. Parent watching her five-year-old dancing in the living room with her arms raised and a look of radiant joy on her face is liable to think, I wish this moment could go on forever. It's just perfect, so beautiful. But you know what, she doesn't really want it to last forever because she loves her daughter too much for that. She wants her to grow up, grow strong, do great things, fall in love, maybe have children of her own. Mom is delighted because her little girl is happy. But if the only way to keep her happy was to keep her five years old forever, good mom would pass. God is a good parent. He's the best parent. He loves it when you're happy. He really wants to see his children happy, but he wants more for them than that. He wants them to be finished and whole, godlike, strong and good, capable of a depth of joy they can't possibly experience, not even imagine, as long as they remain unfinished and incomplete. Being joyful is not enough to make us finished and whole. For that, we need God. So James says, when you're happy and everything is just great, use that as a prompt to interact with God. Sing praises to him. We can use songs to connect with God in gratitude and admiration. Whether we pray for his help in trouble or praise him for his goodness in our joys, we open the door for him to enter. He's the key. If we only go to him in our troubles, we'll never be finished and whole. I mean, that's important. It's invaluable, but it's not enough. People who only go to God in their troubles leave a significant part of their lives untouched and unfinished. We need to learn to go to God also when we're happy. Prayer in times of trouble. Now, that's an entry-level course in interaction with God. They hardly have to teach people that. So is singing when you're happy. As you develop competency in these, these are fundamental, but as you develop competencies in these, you practice praying in your troubles, singing in your joys, you prepare yourself to move to the next level where you'll learn to sing in your troubles and pray in your joys. St. Paul learned how to do this. Remember when he and his good friend Silas were thrown in jail and Philippi, without due process. The prisons, prisons are bad today. I, I'm not sure how many of you have ever been in a prison. I know some of you have spent considerable time there. 
Some of you, like me, have gone in and heard the doors go bang, and you think, boy, that's uncomfortable, but you get to come back out. Prisons aren't pleasant places now, but in, in Paul's day, they were dark, dangerous, frightening places. And prisoners were regularly beaten before they were interrogated. And the concept of innocent until proven guilty didn't exist, and it would have been scorned in the Roman Empire. And yet, in prison, Paul and Silas, who had been severely beaten in preparation for their interrogation, sang songs of praise. They could sing in their troubles and pray in their joys. See, in the entry-level courses, you learn to pray when you're in trouble and, and sing in your joys. The upper-level courses, you learn to sing when you're in trouble and pray in your joys. And that will confound just about everyone around you. But some people will think, I'd like to learn how to do that too. And the teacher is Jesus. We need to include God in our everyday lives, whether we're in trouble or joy. That's what King David was talking about when he said, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. That's the secret. God becomes the center on which our life turns. We find that nothing is too big for his attention. Nothing is too small for him to handle. Or, let me turn that around. Nothing is too small for his attention. Nothing's too big for him to handle. Our confidence grows. Did you know God wants that to happen in your life? You to become confident. It's not self-esteem, though. It's, you're confident because of who you are in him and who he is in you. That's a great place to be in. In verse 14, James takes us even further. So we've had trouble, we've had joy. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Sickness brings its own particular challenges which add to our troubles and subtract from our joys. Sickness, for example, compounds money troubles. If we can't work because of sickness, we lose income. If we go to doctors because of sickness, we increase expenses. That's financial trouble. Sickness also complicates relational troubles. If you have people who are having trouble before sickness enters, man, that just complicates matters. It sets up detour signs on the road to our dreams. Sometimes sets up road close signs. When a person's sick, he's not only to invite God into his life, we saw that with when they're in trouble and when they're happy, but when they're sick, they not only invite God into their life, they also invite the church, represented by its elders. That This goes beyond the original two parties, the individual and God, and includes a third party, the church. This is a cord of three strands that's not easily broken. Yeah, if you get to know God, you will know that God loves to bring people around him together. I mean, you may be satisfied with just me and God in a nice spiritual relationship. He's not. He wants you and his other friends together with him. James says that the elders should be summoned to pray over the sick person and anoint him or her with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, there are two reasons in Scripture that I know of for anointing someone. And if you come to Go Deep on Wednesday nights at Big B Coffee, we'll go into that. One's medical, <clears throat> the other's spiritual. 
The spiritual purpose was to consecrate that person to God's service. So that was usually as a priest, but sometimes as a ruler. I think both things, the medical and the spiritual, are in mind here. The anointing is done in the Lord's name, that is, in conjunction with his will and purpose. The person being anointed is willingly consecrated in his sickness to God's service. Here's the spiritual part of this. As soon as he is anointed, it's no longer just about him. Now it's about God. He's about God, sickness and all. If healing will serve God's purpose and glorify his name, he's prepared to be healed. If continued sickness will serve God's purpose and glorify his name, he's prepared to remain sick. When he's anointed, he's bringing himself and his sickness into the service of God. James says the prayer offered in faith will heal the worn out person. That's the idea behind the Greek word. He's worn out. The sickness has worn him down. And the Lord will raise him up. The prayer offered in faith, the NIV says, literally the prayer of faith. Whose faith? Is it the person's faith, the sick person's? Is it the elder's faith, the church's faith, the elders representing the church? Is it the Lord's faith? Yes, it's a group effort. You remember in Acts chapter 14, Paul is speaking, and he looks out and he sees a guy in the crowd and he realizes this guy has faith to be healed. That's the kind of thing that happens here. The faith which enables a person to receive what God wants to give is present because God is present in that strand of three courts. God, the person, the church. God will often heal the sick person, but not always. The elders and the sick person will only be able to enter the prayer of faith if healing is God's will. If it's not, they won't. St. Paul, through, through whom God healed many people, maybe thousands of people, left his dear friend Trophimus sick at Miletus. It was apparently not within God's purpose to heal him. And Paul was not able to pray the prayer of faith over him. But even when God wants to heal, healing may not happen. When God's willing to do it, it may not happen because of sin. Now, it's really important to understand there is not a one-to-one correspondence here. Sin is not always the cause of sickness, nor is it always the obstacle to healing, but it can be. So James urges us to confess our sins to each other, one of the most overlooked commands in the whole Bible. So, verse 16, you may be healed. You want to be healed? Confess your sins. But not just as a tool to get healed, as a regular practice. Confession integrates the broken person so that healing can happen across his or her life and throughout his or her body. Don't forget you're bigger on the inside than on the outside. Sin disintegrates, confession integrates. Sin blocks the pathways that exist between people, but also within people, pathways that are needed for God's restoring life to reach out to others or into oneself. James understood that confession is powerful. It begins clearing those pathways. Confession is frequently the start of great changes and great things in a person's life and in a church's life. 
if you look back over the history of, of the movements of God's spirit in the world, these great movements always begin with confession of sin. And according to James, Jesus' people should be confessing their sins to one another. And he's thinking this is a matter of life, just a practice. When we learn to live a life centered in God and open to God, open so that we can be with people and actually confess sins with them, we'll see many answers to prayer we would not otherwise see, including healings. Occasionally remarkable answers, like Elijah did. Elijah's James's example, verse 17. He was a man, Elijah says, like us. In Greek, it's something like, of like feeling. He had the same, he's the same kind of emotional makeup we have. We tend to think he was some kind of superstar, unlike us. But James says he was like us. He felt what we feel, wanted what we want. And yet he became the locus of divine action in the world because his life was centered in God and opened to God. Now look at verses 19 through 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So in verses 13 through 18, we saw how we can turn to God in everything that's happening. In verses 19 through 20, we see how we can turn other people to God. But the order here is important. It's people who have learned to turn their lives toward God, no matter what's going on, who will sometimes be instrumental in their friends turning toward God. People who have not learned to turn towards God are not going to have success in turning other people to him either. So you know how that works out in practice? The parent tries to turn a child to God who doesn't turn himself or herself to God. And that almost certainly will fail and may even turn the child away. I've seen it happen many times. All right, so let's put this together. What do we learn here? For one real practical thing, we learn that ups and downs are to be expected. It's just the way it is in our life. You're not going to get away from it. You can use it, but you'll never escape it. Thomas Akempis put it this way, and and the book that I believe has sold more than any other book except the Bible in the history of the world. Thomas Akempis's On the Imitation of Christ, written in the 1200s. He put it this way, if you should temporarily lose your sense of well-being, don't be too quick to despair. With humility and patience, Wait for God who is able to give you back even more comfort. There's nothing novel about this to those who are familiar with God's ways. The great saints and ancient prophets frequently experience the alternation of up and down, joy and sorrow. And so will you. But learn to use them to connect with God, to invite him in. Whether we experience feelings of sorrow or of joy, it's never just about feelings. You can feel great 
and be a thousand miles away from God's amazing vision of your life. Or you can feel terrible and be right on track to become God's masterpiece. See, our culture teaches us to think that we are our feelings, but that's simply not true. Feelings alone will never make you finished and whole. They are not an endpoint to which we are progressing, which society thinks. They are an entry point for the God who can make us finished and whole. And this is what James has been trying to teach us all along in various ways. The person who is on his or her way to being finished and whole is one who is connected to God in all the parts of their lives. See, you thought, I'll be fine if I can just get a handle on a few things. My temper, for one. That's not how it works. If you could manage your life so that you never lost your temper again, you'd still be empty without God. You must learn to make your temptations, your injuries, your fears, even your joys, into points of entry for God. Your life must be filled with his life. You were designed for that, and there's no other way to be finished and whole. There's a church building not far from here. It's built many years ago. It was completed, never occupied. Church, before they moved in, they split. They got angry with each other, and, and the building came to nothing. Now, when it was new, it looked great. But now, after decades of sitting empty, it doesn't look so good. But even if it did, even if it looked as good as it did on the day that construction ended, it would be unfinished and incomplete because it didn't serve the purpose for which it was made. Same with you. You were created to be filled with God, to interact with him, to live a life in union with him. As for me, I want to be finished and whole. Now, there are still many paths in me that need to be cleared of the trash that sin has left. There's still far to go, and I don't pretend otherwise. But if God wills, I'm going. And guess what? He wills. Won't you come with me? Won't you come with me to a life that Jesus bought for us with his own blood, a life in which we become more than we could otherwise ever be because God has become all in all to us. Let's pray. If, if you feel that desire too, would you tell God that? Would you say to him, I want you to become my all in all and I'm willing to take the steps to make that happen. Would you talk to him right now? Lord, I wish you would give us, from time to time, all of us, a glimpse of what awaits those who believe.
belong completely to you and whose lives are filled with you. A glimpse that causes us to hunger and thirst. Lord, it's not because of anything we've done that this vision lies before us, but because of your mercy. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And so, we don't ask you to do this for our sakes alone, but for the sake of the one who died for us, Jesus, your son, our rescuer, Amen.